If you could have a conversation with anyone in history, what would you ask them? Hello, General Washington. Good day, Miss Tubman. I had to know, so I decided, let's give them a call. Welcome to the Calling History Podcast. I'm Tony Dean, and today we'll be calling history to speak with Louise Thadden. She will be answering our call on November 2nd, 1959, at the age of 53, and on the 30th anniversary that she and Amelia Earhart started an organization that still exists called the 99s to support women who wanted to fly. While working as a salesperson with no experience flying, Louise was introduced to her future boss in the aviation business. She signed a contract making the outlandish promise that if he taught her to fly, she would break records and bring notoriety to his business. And then unbelievably, she did it. She quickly became the only woman to hold the speed record, the endurance record, and the altitude record all at the same time. In 1929, she won the Women's Air Derby, later named the 29 Powder Puff. She raced and beat Amelia Earhart, but said even more exciting than winning the first place prize money was knowing that she beat the men too. During this conversation, you're going to learn about an extraordinary role model and understand why you've probably never heard her name, even though she was faster and likely more talented in the air than the famous Amelia Earhart. Ladies and gentlemen, fellow history lovers and coal salesmen everywhere, I give you Louise Thadden. Hello, Miss Thadden, is that you? Yes, it is. How are Hi you? Hi there. Hello, I am so thrilled to speak with you today. My name's Tony Dean. I'm calling you from the future about 65 years after your time. The device that you're holding in your hand is called a smartphone. It's, it's actually similar to your modern day telephones, except it doesn't need the plug in the wall and it makes it possible for me to share a recording of our conversation with people around the world. And I was hoping that I could ask you some questions, but before I do, I understand this is a very strange introduction. Can I answer any questions that you may have first? Yes. Why is it called a smartphone? A fair question. Well, you're probably f familiar with computers in your time, and computers in your time are gigantic. They take up whole rooms. Well, what has happened in the future is, is the technology has, has advanced to a level that you probably can't even imagine right now. And so the amount of computer ability that would be in one of those huge rooms now in your time, all of that can fit in that little device. So that little device can do everything. Like, for example, there are remote control devices, even some that you can fly. In fact, there are probably small planes that you can fly, and you could do them, do that with one of these devices. They are so intelligent, and they can do so much. And in fact, there's, there's probably enough technology in that device to fly a ship to the moon. And so they call them smart devices, because in our time, they do absolutely everything. Now, I'm guessing you would have loved to have one of those in the plane when you were flying in your time. Is that right? Oh, my goodness, yes. I've actually been asked one time the difference between flying the original 1929 Powder Puff versus the new one that's going on today because they restarted it up in the early 50s. And I said, you know, that's like comparing a tortoise to a hare. There is no comparison. 
So I would guess that using this device and computers, I guess that must be some top secret stuff that I don't know about at this point in time. <laughs> but I'm sure the U.S. government, you know, they've got stuff going on all the time. But, oh, yes, this would make traveling, I assume there might be a, is there like a map? There absolutely is a map. Yes, in fact, I would say in these devices now, there are so many things in that smartphone that people don't even use, but the one that everyone uses in a map. So in our time, nobody even carries maps with them anywhere they go. When somebody is, is flying a plane or whether they're driving, they turn their device on, the device tells them are wherever they are in the world, and yeah, you don't carry maps with you anywhere anymore. In fact, if you own a map company, if you and uh, anyone in your family owns a map company, you would want to sell that company to some right now because they're not going to be very valuable in the future. Oh my goodness. Good well, to let me know because the maps that we fly with have even changed from when I first started flying to even the maps that we use today. Tell me what that looks like. What do you use in a plane? In our time, it's, it's no big deal. We say, hey, I want to go here, I want to go there, and, the, and that, that, that device says, yeah, here's how you get there. So let's, give me an example of the place that you would fly and what the map would look like, or do you have somebody else in the plane doing the navigation? Explain that to me. Well, do you want it when I first started flying or when I fly today? I'd like to hear the difference okay. between the two. When I first started learning to fly, we really didn't have very good maps at that point in time, especially maps across the United States. So in 1929, when, when we flew the original Powder Puff, we were using road maps and literally were either following railroads or roads to get from one town to the next town to the next town. But today, if I would go out and getting my airplane and, and fly somewhere, I would actually use what they call an aeronautical chart, which has on it a depiction of all the different landmarks that I would need to fly from one point to another. You know, I could use it to figure out compass headings and draw lines on it so I could know what heading I need to go from here to another airport. But prior to that, in your earlier days of flying, you had a road map and you're literally just up in the sky flying and looking down over the, the edge of the plane and looking for railroads and churches and, and streets and you're trying to recognize that stuff from the air. Is that what you're saying? That's how I did it for the, the powder puff. I'm assuming since you're in the future, do they still have water towers? They, they definitely do have water towers. We haven't figured out a way to not stop drinking yet. Especially alcohol. We didn't give that up either. Well, water towers are labeled with the name of the town. So if we were a little disoriented as to which road that we should have taken, we can like go down low enough and we could read the water tower to verify that we are at where we think we're going to. So occasionally when you are flying in your early days of flying, which your early days of flying are like late, uh, mid-1920s, right? the late 20s, yes. Okay, so you're flying and you're, 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 you're up in the air and you look down, maybe you see cornfields or whatever and, or river and you think, you know what, maybe I'm like so-and-so town. But you're not completely sure and so then you would take the plane and go down closer and fly closer to something so you could get a better look at it and maybe even read a water tower and that's how you were navigating? Well, that's how you would check a waypoint. I mean, that, that's kind of what we had to do. Unfortunately, because of that, that led to me 
getting a really nice job with the U.S. government where, now this is prior to World War II, prior to World War II, we would actually mark airport hangars with the name of the airport. So if you're flying over, you could verify for sure that this airport was what that it was. I mean, there was a lot of markings that we did early on. And then, of course, when World War II came, we had to obliterate a lot of that marking because the wrong people arrived in our airspace, ah. and they would know where they're going, and we didn't want them to know where they were going. Interesting. You know, I heard that one time. I, I was reading, and it was some book about what to do if our country's attacked at some point, and they were saying the first thing you need to do is everybody everywhere needs to take down the street signs so whoever's invading us doesn't know where they're going. And that's exactly what you're talking about. Yes, yes, exactly. Now, the thing, too, ah, I'm wondering if they still exist. When we used to fly mail routes, I, I didn't fly it, but I had friends who flew the mail routes. There would actually be placed on the ground a gigantic concrete arrows so that you could follow that route. You would basically fly from one arrow to the next arrow, and that would kind of help you with your navigation. Because, you know, there weren't the modern electronic equipment that we use for navigational so you know you had to do physical things and so for important mail routes there would actually be these gigantic concrete arrows and I'm I'm assuming now as we've gone to more and more using radio frequencies that those probably aren't being kept up anymore yeah we don't, do you ever we don't see them when you travel <laughs> no we don't have a lot of concrete arrows pointing to anything on the ground in fact I would guess that the pilots of your time are probably 10 times the pilots of our time, which I've, I'm sure I've just offended every pilot that's listening to this, because, in fact, a lot of the pilots now, they will start the plane, takes off, and they press a couple buttons, and then the plane will fly itself for several hours until they get a little bit closer, and then, you know, maybe they have their hands on it, but even the planes even land themselves sometime. And so they navigate without the use of arrows and without looking for water towers and then fly and land themselves a lot of times even though the, somebody is in the cockpit. And so, yeah, it's, things have changed quite a bit. You have mentioned the war. World War II, you had already retired from flying by the time World War II happened, hadn't you? Not retired from flying. I retired from record setting. I, oh, competitive flying. Yeah, competitive flying. The only time I did it again was when my daughter was old enough that I could actually take her as a passenger on a flight. And so I had to do that. My last competitive flying was 1950. My daughter had just gotten her, her license with her mother teaching her. Of course. Um, <laughs> yes. And there was going to be, on the East Coast, a cross-country race similar to the powder puff called the International, and it went from Canada to Florida. That was basically the last time I think I've flown competitively. Nowadays, I fly for personal and, and pleasure and business purposes. Did you fly in World War II at all? Well, yes and no. I did not participate with the women who were volunteering. I guess maybe they were paid. The women that took over for when our young men went overseas flying the military airplanes. But because there were not enough men in the United States, we women that were behind were instructors. So in that sense, I'm, I was instructing the next generation of pilots. 
And oh. I became very involved with the, the Civil Air Patrol and teaching young cadets how to fly. Do you think that there should have been more women flying in combat missions in World War II? Absolutely. Yes. Do you think that was appropriate? Tell me why. Because they're just as capable. You saw all these women who are flying these military airplanes. I think they're just as capable, and I think they should be... My son and I have this discussion periodically. I think there should be women in the commercial cockpit as well. Women can do. I mean, we proved it in 1929. Women are as good in the airplane as men. There are no women that fly commercially right now. Is that correct? Not that I'm aware of at this point in time. And my, my son, of course, he only flies for Eastern, so who knows what the other airlines, but I'm thinking right now, I, I've not heard him say anything. I know he's made some disparaging comments, and I look at him as his mother saying, you know, I'm better than you. <laughs> <laughs> he's, he makes disparaging comments that women shouldn't fly? Well, he, he's got that, I don't know. But he understands where I'm coming from. It's, it's a shame, some, especially some of his peers. I think he's just mimicking some of his peers. Women should be allowed to fly commercially. I mean, there's no reason why not. We all want to fly. I mean, there are women, like my dear friend Amelia, God rest her soul, could show that we could fly across oceans and large bodies of water and across the United States and from one country to the next. I think women are quite capable of flying commercial airlines. And that's where I think the women could have easily been pilots during over there. I mean, it's, why not? Yeah, no, I, I, I agree with you. I think, if a, I think if, a, if, a, if a woman wants to fight for her country, she, she should be allowed to. I did hear an argument. I'd like to hear your response to this because it, it is an interesting argument. I don't remember where I read this. Somebody said that women are certainly as capable as men in, in anything. But if women fight in combat, the argument was, then what are the men fighting for? What do you think about that? They're fighting for the same thing that the women would be doing in combat, and it's for our freedom. Yeah, I agree with you. Do not understand that? It's our freedom. (laughs) We want to be just as free as the men. That makes complete sense. Well, you'll be glad to know that women fly all over the place now, and they're in the cockpit all the time, and... I think you're being a little hesitant to say something right now, and maybe you didn't even say what I read about you, but I read at one point you had said that women are innately better pilots than men. Do you feel that way still? Absolutely. What makes a woman a better pilot than a man? I mean, besides the fact that you guys are smarter. (laughs) (laughs) I think because we're more respectful of, of the machine and its capability, we don't let our egos get in our way. That makes a lot of sense. There is no question about it that when, when you see a man that is a pilot, that's something that he carries on his shoulder. I've never thought of that, but I know some pilots, and they ha- have everything but a shirt that says, I'm a pilot on them all the time. I mean, they just, that's interesting, because that ego, if you take the ego out of that equation, maybe you can think a little bit more sensibly when you run into some difficult situations. That's interesting. You said your daughter got her license. Yes. Who signed her license? Did you sign her license or did somebody else? It would have been her, her check ride pilot. I don't remember who, who gave her her check ride. It would be whoever the FAA administrator was at that point in time. And well, the reason I asked, I read once that Orville Wright signed your license. Is that correct? Yes, he did sign my license. 
But, you know, they got the date wrong, but, you know, I'm not going to say anything bad about that. Well, we don't um, have to say anything bad, but what do you mean they got the dates wrong? Well, I actually passed my check ride in February, but for some reason on my pilot's license, they state that I actually got it in May. So they're off a few months, but, you know, what's a few months? Yeah, that's <laughs> But I true. think that's how long it shows you the bureaucracy sometimes works. The dates certainly don't matter when you look back at everything that you've done. You'd mentioned Amelia Earhart. And as I read about you and your your interesting life, I am confused when Amelia Earhart comes up because people know your name in this time. And there's even an an airfield named after you. And probably a lot of places that people do know your name, but everybody knows Amelia Earhart's name. And from the records that you set and, and your history, I'm not sure that she was a better pilot than you. Is she a better pilot than you are? Or was she? I don't want to speak ill of the dad. I think the reason she's well-known is the mystique of what happened to her. I mm. think that's part of what goes on there. She was a good pilot. I think she took a few more risks, but I lay that kind of at the feet of George a little bit. George who? Um, her husband. Oh, George pushed her? Um, I don't think he pushed her, but he was looking for publicity. I'm speaking out of turn. You know, I don't really know what went on between the two of them personally. You understand, we raced together in a couple different races. We raced the, the 1929 Powder Puffs. Of course, I, I knew of her exploits at that point in time because everybody kind of knew who she was. And then we did race the 36 Bendix. I think it might have miffed her that in both of those races that we raced together, I beat her. <laughs> and that's, that's why I asked that question, because there are some significant records that you hold. These are races where the, the best female flyers, and I think in the Bendix, I think there were, there were men flying in that one as well, correct? Yes. Women had been competing in the Bendix, but it was finally in 36 when they actually offered money to the top woman because they realized that, you know, Amelia, I think, had attempted it, I think, a couple years prior. And I think the men were starting to feel sorry for the women because they weren't winning it. So in 36, they offered up a purse because at this point in time, Jackie Cochran was also making a name for herself as well. So they put up a purse of $2,500 the top placing woman. They kind of called it a consolation prize for the women. <laughs> and so that's the reason my good friend Annie Beach asked if I would fly her husband's latest airplane that they were just starting up in their new company called Beechcraft. She said, they're offering a top prize for the, for the woman of $2,500. Would you be willing to consider it? And I said, Annie, I would be honored. And at that point in time, I was doing work with Blanche Noyes on the Civil Air Patrol. And I said, is it okay if Blanche my co-pilot. She's like, sure, you know, pick whoever you want. That's why it's kind of interesting because I'm sure that the gals that were competing that you were thinking, oh, now we finally get a prize. Well, it's interesting in 36, not only did I win it, I mean, I win the whole thing. I beat the men as well as the women. So I got the $2,500 prize and the $4,500 prize. But what even upset the men even more so was Laura Ingalls came in second behind me, still beating the men. So two women beat the men. Yes. I think women are innately, we know what's going on. 
<laughs> Definitely, no question about it. You'll get no man that argues with that. Let's go back for a minute. When we talk about Amelia Earhart, it is just a tragedy that she died as young as she did. However, if there's one thing that Amelia Earhart knew how to do, it was get publicity. And I have to believe that any discussion that we have, we're not going to say anything bad about her. I have to believe that anything we talk about, she would do anything to get publicity. And this conversation that we have is just going to inspire people as they hear about the things that you overcame. So we're, nothing we're going to say is going to be anything bad about her. But what was her reaction when you beat her the first time in the 29 powder puff? She was just as supportive then. As a matter of fact, when the powder puff in 29 finished in Cleveland, Ohio, it was part of the big aviation expo that was going on in Cleveland at that point in time. And so several of us competed in the pylon racing that was going on as part of this aviation expo. And we would meet under the bleachers and talk about it. And we all realized that we became sisters of the air together. <laughs> Amelia had no hard feelings for anything that we did. We all respected each other. We all knew what we had to overcome to be in the cockpit, to be able to finish this race, and now race again as part of the expo. And that's where the idea blossomed for an organization of women pilots to back one another. We are sisters in the air. There is none of this, I'm better than or she's better than. We're just glad that we're in the air together. There and really Amelia, was a strong uh, animosity between the two mm, of you? No, 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 no. She wow. was a dear friend. She was a dear friend. I mean, when I, when I wrote my autobiography, I meant it at the end that it was such a tragedy that we would lose her so soon. No, there was no animosity. We were there to support one another, which is if I can put in a little thing for you folks, because I'm hoping the organization is still around in your time frame. But today, today is very significant. It's November 2nd, 1929. We met as a group of women, part of us who actually had participated in the, in the 1929 Women's Air Derby, but then others who responded from letters that we sent out. We decided to create an organization that would recognize women and pilots and find ways to encourage one another, support one another, be there for one another, make scholarships available for upcoming women to get them their ratings, their pilot's license, just to be their cheerleader. That's the whole organization behind what we started 30 years ago, and I'm still hoping it's still available in your time frame because there is no animosity. We're all thankful that we, we all finished. And even when I had a mic stuck in front of my face because I was the first one to land in Ohio, I said we were all winners for completing, and I just happened to have a faster airplane. Yeah. Well, you'll be glad to know that that organization does still exist. The 99s, in fact, if you go to their website, there's a picture of you on there. The organization does exist to support women. It was something really good that you that you did. And so today is the 30th anniversary. It was you and Amelia that started that, correct? Well, <laughs> Amelia was graciously enough to allow us to elect her to be president, but she looked at me and said, as secretary, you're going to run this organization. <laughs> she, was, she was pretty busy at that point in time trying to get publicity for... Because that's the way she made her money. 
and she just had this need for doing this sort of thing. And she knew that I would quietly be willing to work in the backgrounds to make sure that this organization kept going forward. That's why I asked you that question, if you were the better pilot, because at least from what I'm seeing, I think that you were. And I, that seems very clear, but the difference is, is that you weren't, it doesn't appear that you were necessarily doing this for any other reason but for the love of flight and to support other women that wanted to fly. Because at that time, I mean, geez, when you... Let's go back in time for a minute. Let's go back in time further than I'm even doing right now. Let's go back. You started flying. It was right around when you uh, stopped going to school, like 1926. Is that right? Yes. In the fall of 1926, I was working for Jack Turner of J.H. Cole Turner Company, mm -hmm. um, going around the city of Wichita, selling coal and taking orders for the company. You were um, selling coal? Well, because it was coal and wood and oil, you know, whatever the people needed to heat their homes in 26. I mean, I don't know what you guys use for heating in your time frame, but, we, you know, we use coal and oil and, and wood. And so my job as a salesperson was to go around and check on our customers and see what they would need for the upcoming winter season. And on my route on an afternoon, I heard that out at the field in East Wichita, there was going to be a first flight of a monoplane closed cabin put forward by Travel Air. And so I thought, I've done pretty well with myself for the day. I'll figure I'll go out and... I had this bug about flying. I'd go look to see what a first flight was like, what, what, what sort of things would be involved in a first flight. And, of course, naturally, I show up, and the first person I see is my boss, Jack. What I didn't know at the time was he was a really good friend with Walter Beach. You know, he laughed at me when I, when I kind of like, oh, Mr. Turner. He laughed. He said, Louise, what are you doing here? And he's like, Mr. Turner, I, I've come to watch this first flight. I'm really curious. And so he said, well, come watch with me. Well, then a couple of days later, he calls me into my office and says, um, I'm more curious about, you know, why you were there. And I told him I would like to learn to fly someday. I but being a college kid and didn't have a lot of resources available to me. He said, you know, I've set up an appointment with my good friend, Walter Beach. Why don't you go visit him? And so I, I showed up at Walter's office. He was asking me questions. I said, well, I'd like to learn to fly. He goes, I'm glad to hear that because I'm going to establish a sales office out in California, and this gentleman that's here with us today is D.C. Warren. He will be your new boss. And, of course, I'm instantly thinking, oh, Mr. Turner did fire me. <laughs> but in reality, Mr. Turner was just fulfilling my dreams. And so that's how I became a part of the Travel Air family. So in the spring of 27, D.C. Warren and I headed to California, and I had a two-year contract with them that in that two years, I had to get my pilot's license, and then I had to fly the travel air airplanes to set records. So I did that. Obviously, we talked earlier about the fact that I got my pilot's license in, in 28. I started building up my confidence. From December to May, I got the altitude record, the endurance record, and in May, I got the speed record. And because I did them in such a short time frame, I think I was the first woman to hold all three international records because there wasn't an, a governing body, an international governing body that was keeping track of all these records. And they informed wow. me when I submitted my speed record that I was the first female to do all three 
and hold them all at the same time. Of course, almost instantly, somebody was breaking one or the other of the record. You know, so I, I held it for a short time frame, that, that title of having all three. But you had altitude, endurance, and speed all at the same time. Right. Wow. Okay, so when you go and meet with Walter Beach, and Walter Beach says, here's your new boss, D.C. Turner? D.C. Warren. D.C. Warren, I'm sorry. Tur- Jack Turner was your Okay, D.C. Warren. I'm a little confused on how that comes about because the way that you're describing it, it sounds like, okay, these guys are walking along. You say, hey, I'd like to fly, and they say, oh, great. Okay, go. we'll invest a bunch of money and time in you, and you're not proven at all. What is it about you that made these people think, we have to invest money and time in this person? I mean, you hadn't been flying. You literally just walked in and said, hey, I'd, I'd like to fly, and there were no real women, well, I guess there were women flying at that time, but I mean, it it certainly couldn't have been that common. What was it about you that made them want to take a chance on you? Because that's a big jump. Probably Jack Turner might have had some say in it. I mean, I had some good people skills because obviously he had hired me to be a salesperson for him. Part of my job in California would be sales to get people interested in flying airplanes. And here's a young woman who has expressed an interest in learning, and especially because in my contract it said I would learn to fly and then set records. They realized pretty early on, if we can get a woman to set records, just like the name Amelia Earhart, if we can get, I mean, Amelia was making Lockheed the go-to name. If you can get another woman involved and set records with the Travel Air, the Travel Air name would get splashed all over the papers. That was going to be my job, and I told them I was willing to do that if I could learn to fly. It's fascinating because we're talking about late 1920s. Just, what, seven years, eight years prior to you getting your pilot license, women just got the right to vote. I mean, that was 1920, wasn't it? Yes. And, yes. Yeah, and now here you are. First of all, it seems very strange. Were there, were there a lot, like even having a sales position, were there a lot of women that were in sales positions there? Were, there certainly couldn't have been a lot of women there like, you know, I'm going to fly and I'm going to set records. And I mean, these are bold moves. Have you been like that your whole life? I, I wouldn't say bold as I would go after my dream. You just knew what you wanted and you'd go after it. I would go after I really wanted to learn how to fly. Between you and me, I tried to use an umbrella and jump off of a hayloft pretending I could be flying. It was a dream early on, and here's a chance that somebody's going to pay me to learn how to fly. I mean, that, that's like a big dream come true. Naturally... You can imagine, I'm barely 20, 21, and at this point in time, I have to ask my parents to go. I can tell you, they were not the happiest people about my choice, but they relented. (laughs) Oh, I can only imagine. 21-year-old girl and a bunch of guys say, hey, you know, we want to take her and have her fly and set records. They had to be a little hesitant. Oh, majorly, especially because they were shipping me out to California, and we're from a small town in Arkansas. Did your parents want you to fly, though? Just maybe be a little closer and a little safer? I don't know that they knew that that was really my dream. I suspect my mother knew because she probably saw me 
launch myself out of that hayloft with an umbrella. <laughs> yeah, what is the hayloft deal? So when you say you jumped out of a hayloft with an umbrella, what age did you think that you might be able to fly with an umbrella? Oh, my goodness. Probably preteen, I think, is memories are kind of, you know, a little vague there. But yeah, yeah sure. somewhere in there. Because, you know, you think you're invincible at that age. You can do anything, and why not fly with an umbrella? It seems like the thing. It doesn't appear that that a feeling of invincibility, that you shook that any time soon after that, because in our time, people can't even imagine what it would be like flying in your time. I mean, you're talking about setting, say, for example, the altitude record. Well, when we fly in a plane, if we go somewhere, you know, they go up to 30,000 feet, and they're like, okay, we're at cruising speed, everybody relax, you can walk around and stretch if you want to. But it wasn't like that for you. I mean, this was seriously dangerous stuff, wasn't it? Yes, because when I set the altitude record, the only people who had oxygen breathing equipment to go above a certain altitude was the U.S. government. Wright Field back in is it Dayton, Ohio, I think is where they were at. Anyway, so, you know, there wasn't anything really readily available for us on the commercial private side of the house to do that. I actually had to go to a local hospital in California and, and talk a young intern into loaning me a mask and some hose and then had the shop guys connect it to an oxygen bottle that we were using. It was all jerry-rigged for me to, to go, you know, because, the, you know, the intern said, if you go above 15,000 feet, you're going to pass out due to lack of oxygen, you know, and, and we kind of knew that um, for mountaintops and that sort of thing. And so it's kind of like, okay, well, I'm jerry-rigged this oxygen bottle. So when I broke my record of being over 20,000 feet, I was lucky I didn't do a number on myself. So you are basically collecting pieces of medical equipment, whatever you can get your hand on, a mask, a tank of oxygen, and you're, I don't know, taping it to the seat and then hoping that you can get to it when you need it. I mean... Everything was put together in pieces like that? Is that right? We could have probably ordered something, but then you have to go through all the paperwork. I mean, the military were the ones that kind of knew what you needed and were developing that. So, yes, we just knew what we had to do to... I mean, I was only going to... I was going to be up at altitude for any length of time. I was just going to go up, be up there long enough that my instruments would record the highest elevation I got to and be right back down. I mean, I wasn't going to be up there for any length of time. This is why I, was, I, why I was looking forward to this call so much. I travel all over the place, and I do all kinds of crazy things, and I jump off of things, and I parachute, and I just do all kinds of things. But when you go to do something like that, to set an endurance record or a speed record, you're going to a place that maybe nobody has been before, You know, even in the military maybe. In fact, most times where somebody has not been before. And you can't possibly know... Like, what's really going to happen when you go to that new altitude? Maybe you won't have time to get the mask on. Maybe you won't be able to get enough oxygen. Maybe the, the system you've put together isn't enough to sustain you, even if you're there for a short time. It's just so inspiring to imagine you going to that level and taking those kind of risks, because the world that we live in right now is a fairly comfortable place for things like flying. And it's very easy for, to get to place to place because people like you said, hey, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to get a box of oxygen. I'm going to tape it to my leg. And you know, I hope this host doesn't pinch. And then I'll, if I can't breathe, I'll grab this. It, it's just so inspiring to see that.
So what's your vision like? Do you have a good vision? Yes. Is it perfect? It, well, it, it has been up until recently. You know, I'm, I'm not as young as I used to be, but I only need reading glasses now. When I fly, I, I don't really need much in the way of glasses. I mean, I would say I have pretty decent vision. I wonder if the, the best pilots, if they had a little better vision than, than those that didn't. No, I do know for for my son, he had to have perfect vision when he started flying for Eastern. I think most pilots of my time frame, especially in the commercial world, we have to have perfect vision. I know that in the you know in the military world, you're not in unless you've got perfect vision. Okay. So when you're in the early days of you flying, here you are in your 20s doing unimaginable things. In the early days, what percentage of the time are you in the air and you're disoriented? Not 100% sure where you are, not sure if you have the right heading, constantly making adjustments. I mean, what percentage of the time do you feel like I know where I'm going and then what percentage are you just not 100% sure? I generally know where I'm going. In the early years, when I set up my checkpoints, I don't make any more than 10 or 15 miles ahead of myself so that I can check for wind variation because that's pretty much the only thing I've got to correct for. I mean, I know what my heading is going to be, what landmarks I'm looking for. I just have to now periodically just check for wind correction and then make that adjustment. I I would say most of the time I know where I'm going. But you're constantly looking for these water towers and these bends in the river and and things that you've recognized in the past. Correct. Yes. Okay. I mean, that's why they call it pilotage. You got to keep heads up. Uh, the equipment that my my son flies on Eastern, I'm sure, is much more sophisticated because, you know, he's always talking about the newest instrumentation that's being made available for them to make their life a little bit easier. Because you know, they're at they're at pretty high up altitudes versus what when I fly myself personally, I'm not more than a couple thousand feet off the ground. Oh, really? You're flying that low most of the time? The airplane that I fly doesn't need to go very high to be efficient. I might go to six or 8,000 feet if there's a good tailwind up there, but, you know, it takes time to climb. You know, I got to make sure the winds are right for doing it. <laughs> you know, wind forecasts are they're improving, but, you know, a lot of times you don't fly very high just because of wind. I know on the ground there's a wind out of the north and I want to go north. I'm not going to go very high up because it probably will get stronger as I go up higher. I mean, you just have to kind of read the weather. What What is available for weather there? You probably have stuff in the sky that tells you what the weather is. <laughs> I, you know, I don't know. I mean, all of our stuff's down here on the ground. I'm not sure what you have in your time. Yeah, now now what they do is, I mean, geez, we, we know what the weather's going to be seven days from now and if it's going to be a windy a week from now. So, yeah, it, it's definitely a different time. Let's go back to the 29 powder puff for a minute. My understanding is that there were 20 women that entered that, and I may be confusing this with a different race. Somebody was killed in that race. Is, is, am I thinking of the right race? Oh, Marble Croissant. Did you know her? Only briefly. When I showed up in August, early August of 29 to pick up my travel air, of course, that was some arm bending again of Mr. Beach by Mr. Turner to let me do this, if you understand. I was trying to tell him, I've done all this record setting for you, and here's a great way to get travel air on the map. Why don't you loan me another one of your new travel airs and let me race it with a little nudge from Mr. Turner. He he allowed me to show up in Wichita early August to pick up my uh, travel air 
with a, a new engine. It seems like every travel air I was flying had a different engine in it. Um, but this, this travel air would have a right engine in it because it was strictly coming just off the line. Didn't really have much time to fly it in production to make sure that everything was good in it. So Mr. Beach said he would fly with me, and we basically flew the, the, the back course. We kind of knew what the route was going to be ahead of time, so you know people would know. Wichita being a stop, the stop prior to Wichita would be Tulsa, Oklahoma, and, the, and then the stop prior to that would be Fort Worth. So because I was already in Wichita, Mr. Beach flew with me down to Tulsa, and by the time we landed in Tulsa, I was, you know, maybe not feeling all that well. But we took off because I thought maybe it was just the nerves. There's a new airplane, going to go racing with all these amazing women. So I'm just thinking, you know, it's kind of that. And then we took off from Tulsa and headed to Fort Worth. And the further we got into Texas, the worse I started to feel. And all I could tell myself is, you know, how to fly this airplane, stay awake, Granted, you probably got a flu bug that you might have picked up when you went home to see your parents, you know, whatever it is. Stay awake, girl. Just stay awake. And finally, I see the airport, and I am feeling so lousily that I just said, dear God, just get me on the ground in one piece. So it was probably not my prettiest landing. Um, Mr. Beach said that when he saw me land, the fact that I had landed against traffic, which was not very professional. He was beginning to have doubts about who in the world had he picked to fly this airplane in this race. And, you know, my landing was a little too fast and I kind of bounced it in, but I'm done. I'm down. I'm on the ground. I mean, I, I think I barely cleared the runway when I staggered out of the airplane and, and leaned against the wing and kind of almost passed out. And somebody comes running up to me because they're like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, what's going on? I don't know if there was a doctor. I've the memories are, are kind of foggy because it turned out I had carbon monoxide poisoning. And I could tell from in the cockpit that things weren't good. That, and actually, when I'd lean my head out of the cockpit to try and get a fresh air, all I was doing was putting myself back into the exhaust of the engine. So that wasn't helping matters either. I mean, I was, wow. just, I was poisoning myself in this airplane. So Walter and the mechanic he brought down, they... They couldn't find anything wrong with the airplane, but they, when they heard what the consequence was, they rerouted the exhaust so that I would have fresh air in the cockpit. And Marvel, oh, dear Marvel, flying the same airplane, but it's her brother who delivered the airplane to California, not her. So when she goes down and the word gets out, of course, everybody's like, oh, women can't do this. Look at they're killing themselves. Amelia said, we stop now. And we're all like, no, we can't stop now. And I vowed when we said we're going forward that I would put Marvel's name on the trophy if I won it. I mean, I made that vow right then and there. I said, she will not die in vain. Well, Mr. Beach, when he heard of Marvel's passing, he made sure all travel heirs with that engine, their exhaust was vented correctly. It just wasn't one thing. I mean, because it was a new engine for the airplane. He made sure that nobody else would ever suffer Marvel's fate. And that's why she died, because it was a new engine and they didn't know the exhaust was coming into the plane. Right. And she was shorter than I was, so, I mean, she probably wasn't aware when she crashed. She was probably already passed out from the carbon monoxide. That makes sense. And so then everybody's saying women are, it's not safe for women to fly, they're killing themselves. And is that, after that, is that when they banned women from air racing for five years? Oh, no, we weren't banned. No, 
I mean, we showed that we could finish the race. We, we showed we could do it. We, I mean, I, I landed in Cleveland. Gladys O'Donnell was second behind me, and Amelia was third behind her. I mean, no, we weren't banned. Oh, I thought there was a gap in between women couldn't fly competitively for a while. But If that was the case, I wouldn't have been able to do my refueling endurance record in 32. Tell me about that one, because that one sounds insane. How, how many hours were you in the air on that one? Well, we counted in terms of days. <laughs> it was over a week. It was like over eight, hour, over eight days we were in the air. And Francis, uh, you would think I would remember my co-pilot's last name. Yeah, Francis Marsali and I were the two that were picked to do the women's refueling endurance. And that was, that was in 32. The idea was that we would go airborne. It was in a Curtis monoplane, meaning there was only one wing. And what they did is they set it up where they would have another airplane fly above us, and then we would pump from that airplane fuel into our airplane tanks. And they would drop food down and, and the like so that we could stay airborne. And Francis and I would take turns, you know, flying the airplane. In the 1930s, you are passing food from one airplane to the other in the air and fuel? Oh, my God. Through hoses and things? Yeah. I mean, that was, yeah. And, of course, the public, you know, when it goes on for as long as it does, our sponsor said that the public's interest in us was waning. So he sent a note and said, I need you to grab the public's attention, so please do something dramatic. He sent down note that Francis was having an appendicitis attack and that I would have to fly the airplane by myself without her help. And, of course, now everybody's worried about these two women being airborne with one of them not being able to fly because she's suffering this medical emergency. We didn't like that idea. Uh, we didn't think it was right. You know, it was... Um, that's when I vowed that I would never lie to the public again because, yeah, we got, the, we got all the publicity, but obviously she wasn't suffering an appendicitis, and yes, she did help me, but whenever the fuel was coming down from the other airplane so that they couldn't say she was helping me, I would have to figure out a way to make it look like the airplane was being controlled and, and pump the fuel, you know, and try and do both jobs at the same time. I mean, it was really foolish. It sounds like a circus, what they were trying to it do. Was. That doesn't sound like your cup of tea at all. But that makes no. me wonder because Amelia got a lot of that attention. And I'm guessing George would have been on, he would have been happy to jump in on something like that. Oh, I'm sure. Yes. Gosh. So have you ever been close to crashing your plane? Or have you crashed it before? Yeah, and I'm not proud of a decision I made. Well, please, tell me. Um, oh. I... I, I I was working on the West Coast, and we had gone to an event, and my boss asked if I could take a certain gentleman home. And I could tell that he had taken on too much of the alcohol. And I, I asked Mr. Warren if, if this is, are you sure there isn't a better way to get him home? And he said, oh, Louise, don't worry about it. You can handle him. And so... I put him in the airplane. Understand at that point in time, the travel air that we were using, passenger would be in one seat and the pilot would be in the aft seat. Not sitting side by side, we're separated. Sure. I strapped him in. I helped him get strapped in, make sure he was safe. I climbed in and I took off. Being a man and being drunk, he thought he could fly this airplane. 
And unfortunately, I could not overpower him and uh, crashed. And what happened? So bad because he died. And I ended up in the hospital for a while recovering from, my, from the crash. I felt horrible because I let myself be talked into a decision that I almost felt in my gut that that's what was going to happen, that this was not a good idea, and it wasn't. And because I accepted and a man's dad. That had to be horrifying. It was. Because I tried, I, I tried to, I tried to save us. Did you land in a field or crash in a field better yet? Yeah, we crashed in a field. Thankfully, we didn't take out anybody on the ground. That would have even been worse. Well, if yeah. that was the one mistake that you've made in your life, then you're, you're a lot better than the rest of us, that's for sure. I'm going to jump back to Amelia for a second. In 1932, she flew across the Atlantic. She basically did what Charles Lindbergh did. And then, of course, she passed along when she was trying to fly around the equator. Was there a point where you wanted to participate in some of these moonshot-type flights? Because you beat all the records. I mean, you obviously... Moonshot. Yeah, when I say... Term. <laughs> well, I mean, it's wow. something that somebody hasn't done. Something that, that garners a huge amount of attention when completed. I didn't need that. When Herb and I got married, I promised him, when we had children, that I would stay home and be responsible for the family so that he could fulfill his dream of having an engineering company that would design and build airplanes. He wanted to be, I think he still wants to be, Walter Beach. I think that's his dream, is still to be, be him. He wants to be the big guy. He wants to be the big guy. And I said, well, I'll help you. Until we have a family, I'll... Can I tell a romantic story? I think yeah, please, go ahead. In the process of trying to establish my records on the, on the West Coast, especially the endurance record, because I was going to be at the solo endurance, not the refueling endurance, but the, the solo endurance in March of 29, I wanted to make sure that the modifications we were making to the airplane with the extra fuel tank in the, in the front cockpit where the passenger would be. I wanted to make sure that, you know, everything was functional. So I, um, you know, do some test flights with it. And in the test flights, I had actually two or three engine outs. You know, where the engine quits and I have to come in and land with the propeller not spinning. And, and because I was circling over the field, that was not a problem. You know, you train to land engine out and and bring the airplane safely down on the ground. Hold on for a second. You're kind of glazing over that like that's not a big deal when you say, you know, when the engines, when the propellers stop spinning and you got to land the plane without. That hadn't even occurred to me that that was something you trained for or that happens with some frequency. That happens enough where you do it often? Normally, you train for it when you're becoming a pilot so that you don't, so you don't destroy the airplane and kill yourself, you know. I mean, you train. You've got to be aware of it. I mean, airplanes, especially in the very early years, in the 20s and 30s, the airplane engines aren't as reliable as they are now. I mean, I, I haven't had an engine out. I don't think I've had an engine out since I was doing the, the test flights back in 29, now that I think about it. So, yeah, you train for it. I'll, I made sure my children could land with the engine out. I mean, I train, I, you train for this. Of course, and we all do that. that yeah, we, we all trade. Um, anyway, in the process, I had multiple engine outs, and so we're thinking there's something wrong with this new engine that we've put on the airplane. So 
I would get my hands dirty just because I wanted to understand the engine. You know, I'm, I'm there with the mechanics taking the engine apart, and there's this cute blue-eyed blonde guy hanging around and offering a lend a hand when I'm tearing down the engine with my mechanic, and he's just hanging around the airport, and we were able to solve the problem. It turned out to be something very minor, which made me red-faced after I realized how minor it was. But that's how I met my husband. My contract wasn't up yet, but pretty close to being done with my contracts with um, Mr. Warren and Mr. Beach that at the celebratory party for when I got my airline transport pilot's license, I would become the fourth woman. I'm proud of that. The fourth woman in the United States to have that. I'd already asked Mr. Warren if I could take a month's vacation because I hadn't been back to Kansas to visit my family since I'd gone to California. And Herb thought if I went home, my parents would keep me at home. And so the night of the party, he says, let's get married. And I'm like, what? Let's borrow an airplane and fly up to Reno and let's get married. And I said, sure. Yeah. <laughs> sure. Sure, so, we'll borrow an airplane. Why not? Why not? So we borrowed an airplane, flew up to Reno and, and got married. The next day, he flies the airplane back because we only were borrowing it. You know, I mean, you rent it. And then I got on a train to head back home, but I had told Herb at that point in time that when my contract is up, I'll retire from competitive flying. I still said I wanted to fly. And he said, well, then once we get everything all together, he wanted to start his airplane company back in Pennsylvania. And I said, I'm, I'm good with that. I'll go wherever you want to go. I've fulfilled my dream. I have my pilot's license. Let's go fulfill your dream of starting the Thaden Engineering Company. And so, so we did. When your husband wanted to be Walter Beach, and of course, Walter Beach wanted to be Walter Beach, and all these men are trying to rally brave women like you and get them in the air, why do you think they even cared to get women involved in this? What do you think, what was the purpose of getting the women involved? Because I'm sure there are plenty of men that wanted to fly, but why are these men so after the women for them to make this splashy name or do you have a, a, a thought on that it's because we would generate publicity it's an unusual role for a woman it's unique plus the way our sponsor explained it for the 29 if we can show that women can fly across country more women will fly and if more women will fly more men will realize that flying is also safe oh you know, it's kind of Men were already flying, but, you know, there was some reluctancy because you heard of engines out and airplanes crashing and the like. But, you know, if we could show that it was safe enough for women to do, obviously it's very safe for men to do. Wow, that makes total sense. So basically the men were trying to show that if a woman can fly, then anybody can fly. Exactly. And anybody can. And and it was true, yeah. Unlike in a lot of places, you know, they might try to show something like that, and it's it's not true. But in this case, it is it is very true. They just needed somebody courageous to step up and say, "I'm the one that's willing to fly with the oxygen tank between my legs and a little hose, so I can breathe," to prove that that all these things are possible. Gosh, what a story! Amazing. The twenty nine powder puff. Did Will Rogers call it that, or was that the actual name? I heard Will Rogers named it that. Yes. Is that true? Yes. 
He was the quintessential radio personality. At that point in time, our sponsors said, even though we're flying and we have these, I call them raccoon faces, you know, because you got goggles on and, you know, you got soot all over your face. Before we would leave the airplane, we tried to pretty ourselves up because we knew that at every airport, our job was to promote aviation and promote women in aviation. So one of the photographers caught a woman powdering her nose before she exited the airplane so she would be a lady before getting her picture taken. The photographer took the picture before she was ready. I guess he saw that picture in the local paper because it probably occurred at one of our stops either in Texas or possibly even Tulsa. And he announces on his radio show, Oh, have you guys been following the Powder Puff Derby? Yeah, that's how it started. Of course, we all know what happened in in late, in fall of 29. Fall of 29, the Depression. You know, things are tight. You know, money's tight. You know, there's a hiatus for everything, and then the war breaks out. Anyway, when that reconstituted itself back in 52 or 53, they called it Atwar, but the nickname we all called it among ourselves was the Powder Puff Derby because... We wanted to reconstitute what was done in 29 when we resurrected it or when the women wanted to re-resurrect it again in the early 50s. And so everybody already knew the powder puff. Interesting. As the women are trying to get attention and you guys are being encouraged to put makeup on and, and look a certain way prior to photographs being taken, you guys just had to be laughing behind the scenes because you knew that flying a plane is, this is not something you do with nice makeup on and a dress. This is real work. You guys had to be laughing at the absurdity of putting makeup on before you would go fly. Is, is, that, is that right? Oh, yeah. yeah. As a matter of fact, Herb and I joked, oh, where were we? Columbus. Columbus, Ohio was the last stop before Cleveland for the race finished up. And Herb had a chance to catch up with us in Columbus. And so we're at the banquet. We're joking because it's like we all have to be in these formal dresses, dressed really nicely. And here we are with our farmer's tan, our raccoon faces. <laughs> From the goggles? Yeah, from the goggles. And we're just, we're just laughing. I mean, it's like, oh, we just thought it was the silliest thing. I could totally see that. I understand you've written your memoirs and, and an autobiography. Anybody that has, hasn't read that should read them because you've done something that I think people that push the boundaries often don't do. And that is, it appears that you've had a little balance in your life. You've got family. You found love. You also did extraordinary things that, that other people haven't been able to do. And that, that balance is, is, is a really neat thing and, and a difficult thing to achieve. And yet, I have to guess, there's that one thing that is still missing. What is that one thing that you, you wish you would have done or maybe you wish you would have done more of? Is, is, there, is there that thing that you wish there was still time for, but maybe there's not? There is one thing I would like. And that is being a part of the Civil Air Patrol in teaching these young military pilots. I would like very much to have a ride in a military jet just to see what it's like. My son has the love just as much as I, I do. And he was fortunate to get on with Eastern Airlines with his military background. He also has joined the New Hampshire Air National Guard. And uh, he promises me when he gets approval, and it's pretty close because nobody's, nobody's told him so far, nobody's told him no, but there's a good chance next spring 
I will get my wish, that I will actually get to fly with my son in a military jet. Granted, it's a trainer because it's got to be two-passenger, but I'm looking forward to the day. I am looking forward to it. The other thing that we've tried to do, because I do travel for my husband's business, is I hope someday be on the same airline plane that my son is also flying as captain. That's another thing I would look forward to someday happening. So I, I have two things to look forward to. One is my, my jet ride, and one is having my son fly me as my captain. And you know as well as I do that once you achieve both of those, which they both will happen, once those things happen, those will just open the door to the next thing, and you'll just keep doing things and keep inspiring people. I hope so. Do you prefer to be called Louise or, or Miss Thadden? We're friends. Louise works. Yeah. Louise, I am so thankful for all this time you've given me today. I, I have enjoyed our conversation so much, and I appreciate everything you have done for us in the future and all the people that you've inspired. Thank you so much for taking all this time today, and I wish you and your family the best. Well, thank you so much. I'll, I'll pass it on to Herb and to Pat and Bill. Thank you. What a story. Louise was fearless and courageous. She had goals and went after them. It's hard to imagine this 21-year-old having the courage to take on these challenges in the 1920s. This would have all happened just years after women earned the right to vote. But my favorite part of speaking with Louise is learning how she managed to live such a balanced life. She worked hard, had giant aspirations, and then without becoming overzealous about this one part of her life, gracefully stepped into the next phase and built a family and a business. We should all be so humble and driven at the same time. Thank you for listening, and don't forget that when you subscribe and tell a friend about the Calling History podcast, you could win an all-expense-paid trip to Tahiti. Probably not, but you are making it possible for us to create more content. I'm Tony Dean, and until next time, I'm History.